We've begun another week of our four-and-a-half-year verse-by-verse journey through all of God's inspired Word, and I want you to join me where we left off last session in Hebrews chapter number 9. And this is another meat and potatoes section, as I sometimes refer to it. Uh, It's not milk. And so some of you that are brand new to Christianity, you may need to chew on this a little bit before it all makes good sense. I would like to recommend, as a very simple uh, means of assistance, a little diagram that I've done on the shadow tabernacle and its connection uh, to the New Testament uh, things that it symbolizes. So if you go to intotheword.net, and right there on the front page to the left-hand side as you scroll down a bit, you will see the PDF resources section. And if you'll just look for uh, my little, I think it's two pages uh, of teaching on the tabernacle. And uh, there's a little diagram that will help you visualize some of these things more easily. Uh, So the whole point that our author is trying to get across here is Jesus is more important than anything in Israeli history up to this point. And so we're actually writing this, he's probably writing this about 90, excuse me, uh, 65 or 66. Uh, Right before the Jewish-Roman War gets started, uh, which eventually ends up with the destruction of the temple completely and entirely in the spring and summer of 70. And there's never been a temple put back in place. And I don't believe there ever will be. And I most certainly teach that there is absolutely no reason for it. Because everything that the temple represent, uh, represented was fulfilled by Jesus. Hebrews chapter 9 is about that. So let's dive back into it again, and you take out of it whatever you can get out. Now, even the first covenant, that's the Mosaic covenant, had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. So there were rules for the tabernacle and uh, how it was to be built and how it was to be used. Verse number two, for a tent was prepared the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Now, this room, if you want to refer to it like that, was uh, 10 cubits high, so that's 15 feet, 10 cubits wide, and 20 cubits long. Uh, So that'd be 30 feet long. Uh, This is the only place that priests went in and out of every single day because they had to do things in this section as part of their ministry. Now, there were three articles, uh, uh, we call it furniture, inside this room. Now, our writer of Hebrews takes one of those and connects it much more tightly with the other room. Uh, And we'll get to that in just a bit. 
But the two items that he mentions would be the lampstand, which was on the left-hand side as you came in. Uh, it was seven-branched. It was fueled with the highest quality olive oil that you could get. And it represented, I believe, the word of God through the power of the Holy Spirit that gives us light seven days a week. I think that's the best representation of that. The bread of the presence was over on the right-hand side as you came in, and it was a table with 12 loaves, flat loaves of unleavened bread in two different stacks uh, with uh, incense that was sprinkled around it, uh, and it had some cups as well. I would guess probably 12 cups of wine. It was a dinner table, if you will, but it was a symbolic dinner. Uh, and this bread of the presence represented Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, being in God's presence every single day, all week long. Uh, at the end of the week, the bread and presumably the cups were replaced with fresh. And the priests that were on duty, going off duty, coming on to duty, they would all have a fellowship meal where they ate the bread and drank of the cup as a reminder that they were in this together. They were connected in service to God. And so I think that communion, modern-day Christian communion, I think is is definitely in mind there. And I think it's one of the reasons I like seeing it practiced every single Lord's Day. Because as far as we can tell, it was on the Lord's Day that the ceremony of the sharing of last week's bread and cup uh, took place amongst the priesthood. All right, so those are the symbols that the author wants to present in connection with the holy place, which is the place where the priest did all their work. It's the place where they came together to do God's work. And same way we Christians come together uh, because we have the word of God in common, we have walking in the light of God in common, we have uh, fellowship with God and fellowship with the saints all in common. And it happens day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, throughout a lifetime. Verse number three, behind the second curtain, and this curtain will be very important later. It, we sometimes refer to it as the veil. Uh, this curtain in the tabernacle is specifically said to be embroidered with cherubim, the four-faced, four-winged and angels that we first meet in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve have been kicked out because the cherubim were put in position to keep Adam and Eve in their sinfulness from ever coming back into God's presence. And so this veil, this curtain between the holy place where the priests did their work and the most holy place, which we're about to find out is a representation of God's presence, this veil represented the fact that sinful people cannot come in to the presence of a sinless God, of a holy God. So behind this second curtain 
was a second section called the Most Holy Place. It was 10 by 10 by 10 cubits. So by our way of doing measurements, 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet. It was a perfect cube. And it was a golden cube uh, in uh, the temple uh, because the walls were all uh, highly polished uh, gold uh, on the actual paneling. Uh, But the point that we want to go to next is in verse 4. Having the golden altar of incense... Now, the incense altar actually sat on the the holy place side of the dividing curtain so that when the priests came and offered incense in the holy place, they were doing that on this incense altar with the screening curtain uh, just on the other side of the incense altar. Uh, On the day of Jesus' death, when Jesus died and a great earthquake took place, the screening veil ripped from top to bottom right behind the altar of incense, uh, revealing the Holy of Holies to the high priest who happened to be standing there that day. Uh, that, That incident is going to be important later, so I want you to file it away in your head. Uh, So the golden altar of incense, beyond any shadow of any doubt, represents prayer. The incense is the prayers of the saints. That's what the book of Revelation says. Uh, So day by day, we offer up prayers to God. Um, These prayers are fueled by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Interestingly enough, uh, when the high priest came in to minister. When the priests came in to minister, they always brought hot coals from the sacrificial altar out front to lay on this incense altar, and then they'd throw the incense uh, in granular form on top of these hot coals, and they'd, they'd poof up into a great big fragrant cloud of smoke that would go high. And so you can see the symbolism of prayer there. Uh, and uh, this is always what happened during the hour of prayer, mid-morning, mid-afternoon at the temple. All right. But behind that that curtain was the Ark of the Covenant that was covered on all sides with gold, in which was the golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Now, that's in the original tabernacle. Uh, when Moses was going through his whole leadership during those 40 years, after he had had the Ark of the Covenant made, um, at the end of the 40-year period, uh, they were told to put one day's ration of manna inside a golden container and put it inside the storage area of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was actually... Um, it was a it was a portable throne. That was the way it was supposed to be designed. And so the golden urn of manna was representing God's daily provision. Aaron's staff that budded uh, also comes from that same time period in the wilderness, where Aaron's leadership was challenged. And God told all those that wanted to challenge him, 
you put your own staff in front of the Ark of the Covenant, and then uh, he'll put his staff in front of the Ark of the Covenant, and tomorrow I'll show you who I choose. And when they all came back in the next day, Aaron's rod, which was made of dead um, almond wood, had come back to life. And it had put on new shoots, and on those new shoots there were some flowers, and in some of those cases those flowers had ripened overnight into into almonds. And so that was God's way of saying the Aaronic priesthood is the one that I want you to use. Uh, And so this was a a symbol of the Aaronic priesthood. Uh, priesthood leadership. And then the other thing was the tablets of the covenant. Uh, The second edition of the Ten Commandments written by God's own finger, because you remember the first edition were destroyed by uh, Moses when he came down from the mountain and saw them partying away with the uh, golden calf. Uh, So God had them placed inside as the representation of his law that he'd given to them to basically they needed to behave themselves. They needed to be able to move forward uh, toward his uh, eventual intention for them as a nation. All right, so all of those are inside the throne of God, the, the Ark of the Covenant. And then above the Ark of the Covenant, verse 5, were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Uh, The cherubim were real angelic beings. We see them in the Garden of Eden. We see them uh, in uh, the stories of Ezekiel. Uh, They're four-faced, four-winged creatures, apparently high-ranking angelic beings uh, that are to be found at the base of God's throne. Uh, And so in this case, these golden representations of the Gergamim are at each end of the Ark of the Covenant, each end of the throne of God uh, in the tabernacle. And their wings, because they've got four of them, uh, one set of their wings come up and over the top of the Ark of the Covenant seat, uh, kind of like a canopy over the top of the throne. Uh, That area of the seat is referred to as the mercy seat, Uh, and uh, it's it's, uh, where the sin is taken away. Uh, When the priest comes in in a ceremony that we'll soon be seeing described, he will put the blood on that seat underneath the wings, the outstretched wings of the Gerovim of glory. Uh, And uh, uh, this is also the place out of which the voice of God comes from between the Gerovim, above the mercy seat. It's as if God himself is seated on this throne when he's talking to Moses and others. And so all of that is in the Holy of Holies, 
because that is the throne room of God in this tabernacle. Um, of these things, the author says, we cannot now speak in detail. He's got some other things he wants to talk about, but for most of the Jewish people, they already had a visual picture of all these things in their head as to how they work. Uh, for many of you, this might be the first time you've heard about it, which is why that little handout that I recommended uh, could be very useful for you to see kind of the diagram of how everything kind of fit together. Now, in the New Testament era, there was no Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was last seen in the Old Testament, specifically uh, in the late 600s B.C., uh, a matter of decades before the destruction of the first temple. Now, there are some Jewish legends uh, that it was uh, taken away by uh, Jeremiah and hidden, uh, but none of those legends make any sense in connection with the inspired Old Testament story of Jeremiah. He would never have had the opportunity to take the Ark of the Covenant away. Uh, there are some people that try to say that the Ark of the Covenant was... Um, duplicated by uh, King Solomon, and he kept the copy at Jerusalem, which was then eventually destroyed by the Babylonians, and that the original ended up going to Ethiopia. I don't put any stock in that story either. This is what I think we should do. I think we should always trust the Bible for our answers. Book of Revelation makes it very plain that the Ark of the Covenant is currently in heaven. It is in the heavenly sanctuary. And that is where it will remain until Jesus comes back, because I am convinced that Jesus will sit upon the Ark of the Covenant in his eternal kingdom, because it is his throne and no one else's. That's my uh, belief, and I'm sticking with it. If you got questions or comments, feel free to contact me. Uh, but as we go back to the text, let's let the writer of Hebrews now explain how all of those physical things were used on planet Earth in the temple complex or in the tabernacle uh, arrangement, and how those had symbols uh, attached them as to what Jesus was really going to do. Here we go. Again, meat and potatoes stuff, so get out of this what you can and uh, kind of hang back um, uh, for uh, uh, another time through if you don't quite get it this time. Verse number six. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, that is, into the holy place uh, on a regular basis, meaning every day, several times a day, apparently, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, that is, into the holy of holies, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year. And that once a year is Yom Kippur, 
the Day of Atonement, the 10th day of the seventh Jewish month. So shortly after uh, the fall new year has begun and shortly before the fall harvest festival known as Sukkot or the um, Feast of Tabernacles. Into the second, only the high priest goes and he, but once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So the ceremony of Yom Kippur, which you can go back to the Old Testament and read about this. Uh, Leviticus 16, I think, has a good um, uh, description of this. Uh, The high priest would first go in with sacrificial blood, animal blood, and uh, put the blood on the mercy seat area, on the flat top of the Ark of the Covenant, underneath the outstretched wings of the Keterim. Uh And he would do this to atone for his own sins. Then he'd come back out and get some more blood, go back in, and then he would atone, do the same ceremony on behalf of all the Israelis that had sinned but wished they hadn't. Uh, Yom Kippur was a once-a-year ceremony to remind everyone, if you don't, if you don't seek God's forgiveness in His ceremonial way, then you will have to be accountable for your sin, which means you will have to die. You will pay the price. Uh, so Yom Kippur, uh, in modern times, uh, the Jewish people still practice Yom Kippur, but not with a temple. Uh, rather with a day of fasting and reflection uh, and sorrow over things that they've done wrong. Now, of course, the ceremony is worthless to uh, cover anything that you did on purpose and you don't care about, you're not sorry about. Uh, So Yom Kippur was all about a high priest in Israel trying to bring all Israelis back into a relationship with God uh, to remind them you have to resort to God's way of doing things or you can't have relationship. Now, verse number eight. By this, that is by this ceremony, by this symbolism, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. All right, so as long as the temple was still being used, tabernacle first, then temple, it shows that the high priests and the people were still aware, I've got a problem. I'm out of relationship with God. I still need to get this fixed, just like last year. And the year before that, and the year before that, and the year before that, I keep having to come back here year after year after year because I'm still not getting things fixed. Verse 9 continues, According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So you can't feel like the problem is fixed. 
I have to keep coming back year after year after year because the problem is still there. Uh, So they cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipers, but deal only with food and drink and various washings. There were symbolic immersions during this whole thing. Regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. So all of this symbolism was intended to prepare the Jewish mindset for the coming of the Messiah, Yehoshua, Jesus. Verse 11, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, that is, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So when Jesus came on the scene, he did not go up to the Temple Mount and take the blood of bulls and goats into the temple uh, building uh, and place it on the Ark of the Covenant. Ark of the Covenant wasn't even available at that time. He didn't go through the physical ceremonies. He would not have been allowed to do that. What he did instead was, by his death, he went into the very presence of God and secured real and permanent and lasting forgiveness. Uh, He went into the holy of holies in heaven, that is, God's actual presence. And he didn't take animal blood, he took his own blood. Now, don't be too literal about that. Jesus didn't, like, present God the Father with a big container of his own blood. He went into the presence of God, having died for our sins. And thus, he secured redemption eternal redemption, where we don't have to keep going back every year on Yom Kippur. Uh, Verse 13, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works, to serve the living God. Now, there's too much of that uh, for us to tackle in 30 seconds. So let me just invite you to do a little bit of reading on this on your own. Maybe go back and reread a little bit in the Old Testament about the ashes of the red heifer. And when we get back in next session tomorrow, we will talk more about how Jesus' death and resurrection is what really saves us not Old Testament symbolism.